straight ahead with the 606 Club from Midnight Wednesday. Hold your head as high as you can, high enough to see who you are, little man. Life sometimes is cold and cruel, maybe no one else will tell you, so remember that you are black gold, black Black gold with a diamond sword. 
to see you. I'd love to see you. Life sometimes is cold and cruel, baby. Colder than us. Hello and welcome along to this week's Straight Ahead Jazz and Conversation with myself, David, and the 606 Club of London. We just listened to a track from Esperanza Spalding featuring the vocals of Elder of Blessed, and it was from an award-winning album from a few years ago called Radio Music City. Next to play is a number featuring our guest at the club this coming Friday. In fact, Imani is going to be kicking things off for us at this year's EFG London Jazz Festival, and here is Imani along with Wildcard and their version of Georgie Porgy. Yeah. 
this week's show, we have got more music from the brand new album from Joe Harrop. Music also from Paul Edis, Amanda Whiting, Nigel Price, and more from the album that we started to play tracks from last week from the Brian Molly Quartet. China Moses will be releasing another studio album early next year, along with the Vibe Tribe. And ahead of that, she's released a four-track EP. So let's go listen to Move Over. You say that it's over now But still you hang around me Come on, won't you move over You know that I need a lover You know that I need a man But every time I ask you just tell me
guest on the show this week is pianist and vocalist Lara Eady. Lara's actually over in London at the moment, getting ready for her appearance during the EFG London Jazz Festival. But uh, she's a fascinating, fascinating person to talk to. Really enjoyed the interview with her, and you'll be able to hear music from Lara and the first part of the interview in a short while's time. But if you've been listening to the show during the course of this year, you'll know that I have loved the album After Dark from Amanda Whiting, featuring Amanda on harp. It's got Aidan Thorne on double bass, John Reynolds on drums, and on the track we're about to play, Just Blue, this features on flute, Chip Wickham. from all of the music that I mentioned that you can look forward to on the show we've also got music from guests at the club this week as part of the EFG London Jazz Festival we'll be hearing from Mornington Lockett and also from Polly Gibbons who's with us at the club this coming Sunday from 8 o'clock details of course are over on the website 606 Club 
Uk. And I've got an album from Polly from a couple of years ago called What's the Real Reason? And we're about to listen to Toy Shop.
I mentioned, Polly is part of our stellar lineup for the EFG London Jazz Festival with us this coming Sunday evening from 8. Now, the highlights over the next few days include Mark Lockhart's Generations Band and also Gary Husband and the Speed Racers. But for full EFG London Jazz Festival details, go over to the website 606club.co.uk. Right, it's time we get to meet our guest this week, pianist and singer Lara Eady. This is a track that, well, it's actually the first track I ever played from Lara's on the show going back to earlier this summer. It's Dry Cleaner featuring Dave Mannington along with Nadia Sharif. Straight ahead, jazz and conversation. I'm down to roll of dimes, stuck in the slot that's hot, and keeping bells all around me, jingling the lucky jackpot. They keep you tantalized, they keep you reaching for you while they hear fool's paradise. I talked to God from the morning, he said he ran a cleaning plant. Cranking with coins Well, he must have had a genie in left Cause every time I dropped a dime I blew a hickey bringing bells Nothing to it He got three oranges, three lemons Three cherries, three plums I'm losing my taste for fruit Watching the dry cleaner do it Like mine, I said, oh, polyester suit It's all luck, it's just love You get a little lucky And you make a little money Ready for 
So it is that part of the show again. It's interview time, and this week I have got Lara Ede with me, singer and pianist. Lara, how are you? I'm very well, David. It's really lovely to be here. And when I say be here, via Zoom at least. So hey, it's really lovely. <laughs> that's good enough for me. It means we can talk and find out all about you. So just before we started recording, uh, I asked where you were at the moment, because you do travel a fair bit, but you're back in Athens at the moment, which is where you were born, right? Yes, exactly. So I was born and raised in Athens. Um, and I went to international school. I was educated in English and then hence the accents. Uh, it's the most mesmerizing accent. It's a lovely voice. It's a, such a traveled voice. I said it's very hard to place, but it's oh. a beautiful speaking <laughs> voice and singing voice. It's a lovely voice. Thank you so much. Um, yeah, I guess the accent sort of became synonymous with the, the parts of the world where I was lucky enough to live. Um, you know, for instance, I, my first degree, which was in English literature, was in Scotland, actually. Um, which makes things even more, I guess, <laughs> funny regarding my accent. So, uh, so why, I, why, the, why the travel then? What, did your parents travel? Did their jobs entail much moving around as a kid? Well, it's funny you should ask that. My dad, yeah, and in a way, I mean, I, I spent most of my, well, I spent the first 20 years of my life or so in Greece uh, before I left for uh, uni in St. Andrews in Scotland, as I said. But my dad's job um, up until COVID, yes, he did travel a lot in the Middle East and States and everything. But I think... By definition, when people ask, like, you know, how come you've been all over the place? Mm. I think it's just in our blood as Lebanese people. We're very much a traveler, nomadic type. So I was really lucky in that sense. And I think, um, you know, being brought up in a very, very multicultural household, we sort of traveled anyway <laughs> in our own home. So, I mean, for instance, a regular day in the Edie family, you'd hear someone start a sentence in French and end up in Greek, <laughs> English, and Arabic. So... Yeah, so I, I guess I've traveled from a young age in that sense. And of course, when I moved to London uh, years later to uh, do my master's at the Guildhall School of Music, you know, it, I ended up there for the last, um, up until recently, for the last eight years. So when did the music bug first bite you then? When you were in Athens or when you were traveling somewhere? Um, music has always been a part of my life. It's an interesting relationship, as I'm sure most of the uh, musicians that come on your podcast have said to you. So I well, fell in love with music as early as five. And uh, my first memory was watching, uh, even though I'm not a classical musician, was just, I was just mesmerized watching a performance on TV of Mozart's The Magic Flute. And there was just something about how music made me feel, mm. which really resonated with me, which carried on through to this point, this day, actually. Um, I always knew I would end up in music. I just never did it professionally until my early 20s. So I was always performing. I was in musical theater a lot. I was always that kid at school who was always signing up for band projects and piano and singing, anything I could get my hands on. I trained classically and all that. But then I stopped, you know, for a while because I was so scared of what it meant to be a professional musician. Stopped as in the practice and the training and yeah. rehearsing and so on. Yeah, so I kind of did things the other way around. So I stopped when I was 19. And as I said, um, I went to study literature. And it was in Scotland when I was surrounded by wonderful folk musicians. There you go. Another influence. I thought mm -hmm. to myself, nah, no, I need to go back to music. So that's what happened. <laughs> it's interesting to mention it at that age because um, performance anxiety is something that it does rear its head from time to time with musicians. Obviously, by the time, generally, obviously is the wrong syntax, but normally by the time you get to professional level, you've learned how to manage it, if not completely conquer it. But just put us in mind of what it's like to perform because to stand up 
at the front of the stage and the focus on you. At least I, I can do it in the confines of a student. No one can see me, but you're very much in our line of vision as a performer. Is it something that ever crosses your mind? Clearly, as a, as a younger artist, it was something that was an issue. And then you've learned how to deal with it, I guess, right? Yes. And I love that question. Um, I really do. I, I didn't experience performance anxiety in the traditional sense, meaning that I'd never felt anxious on stage. In fact, the stage is where I feel my most... I'm at my oh, most that's sanctuary for you. It is. What freaks me out and still does is um, how I feel afterwards, because you're... To go back to what you said, the way I experience anxiety in that sense is, and I will say this to students as well, as a performer, and you said it's spot on, we're always, we're exposing every single part of our soul and, and our vulnerability to the world, whether it be five or a thousand people. So the aftermath of that, we want to sort of hold and manifest that moment, whereas you're talking with people and then sort of crumbles, you know what I mean? And it crumbles down and I feel like, do I need to explain how I feel? Do I need to talk about things? You know, so I kind of want to go away and meditate for a moment or two. That, that's what I feel. But the, the truism is that no matter, I mean, people pay to come to your gig. So you would imagine mm -hmm. nine and a half out of 10 are already bought into you and what they're about to hear. But you can, <laughs> as you know, you can never satisfy everybody. You're either going to perform two songs in a set that people can't, well, why, why put those in? I don't want to listen to folk influence music. I want to listen to jazz style music or, you know, you, you're never ever going to be able to achieve that, that zenith of, of, because if you do please everybody, I guess you've just settled in some way. And even with music I play on the show, I know there's going to be tracks that some people just want to turn the radio off to, but mm -hmm. that's kind of the balance. As a performer, you, I think you'll kind of understand what I'm saying, that you've got to strike that balance of artistically what you want to portray as well as pleasing the people that are paid to come and see you. Again, I'm loving this. Um, I really, I think it's just so heavily ingrained in my character as a person, which as we all know, sometimes can be heavily intertwined with that of an artist. Um, meaning, um, my taste in music, for, for instance, I'll give you an example. When mm. I, the music I grew up to, mm. uh, was all folk rock, like everything from Woodstock just found its way on sets. Remember those? in my living room and I just loved it. And then I discovered jazz later. So hence, whenever I uh, do a set list, for instance, with Nadja Sharif and, and Dave Mannington, who I play with in London, they're always uh, just so eager to see what I come up with in a funny way because Dave's like, ah, that, that's very folky. How, how are we going to, you know, it's, but I'd always tell him, well, you know, it's, it's folk, but therefore it's music. Therefore it can sort of meander to the world of jazz. So because... Ultimately, jazz music for me is such a wonderful umbrella of music because it incorporates all styles. And it ultimately, what I'm trying to say is that, uh, yet, no, you can't please everyone. But I firmly believe that as a performer and as a singer, if I believe in the story of my set list, mm -hmm. then everyone will. Uh, this is what I love about these interviews. Sometimes they just take their own journey. And I can see we're heading in a very different direction here, which is fascinating. So... <laughs> Would you pigeonhole yourself then as a jazz singer or would you prefer to be a singer or a performer? Oh, man. Um, See, I should have sent you these questions and I should have prepped you. No, 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 no. <laughs> no, I love it. I don't, I don't like prepping for stuff, as you may have guessed by now. I love waiting here. Anyway, that, that's jazz. So, well, okay, mostly. <laughs> so I, that's a really good question. So, do you know, I, I'm not seeing, before the pandemic hit us, uh, one of the last gigs I saw, 
um, stands the Aunt Carol. Mm. And I remember, and I just, I love her. I love everything about her as a person, as an artist. And I'll answer this way. When, when she was on stage, I love when she chats to people, all that banter, because it makes a genuine connection. So she turned around and she said, literally, uh, I'm paraphrasing here, I don't like to be pigeonholed. Um, I am a singer and I play music. And I just, I had this massive smile on my face. Like, yes, that, that's it. That's what it's about. So I think I would, and, and again, for the sake of, you know, marketing and promotion, which is what independent artists do, I would say I'm somewhere along the lines of a singer-songwriter who happens to be a pianist as well and meanders between the world of folk and jazz. Once again, you put your finger on, on the spot of what I was about to say is that I think the pigeonholing <laughs> is... yeah. From my side, I, I, I guess I kind of need to know where somebody fits into because I present not only a jazz show, I present some soul shows. So I kind of need to know those boundaries. So when I receive yeah. a file from somebody or an email from somebody, my brain is automatically thinking, okay, that's going towards that show. Clearly there's some crossover, but generally my brain is, and that's where I think I'm guilty of expecting some sort of pigeonholing, which is terrible because I hate bland music with a passion, <laughs> with an absolute passion. Uh, so I like the fact that you are spirited enough to not try and be formulaic and just fall into a certain type of music. And presumably that would get, that would be, that would be boring as an artist as well, right? Because if you were to go to a gig or to the studio, to record your next album and it was going to sound the same as the previous album, mm. you're not pushing yourself. You're not, you're not experiencing the journey. I thank you, David, because I, I know it's, uh, as I said, and as you said, very, very eloquently, it's very important for artists to know at least the genre of music or the genres, you know? Mm. So for instance, um, artists I like, I've seen change. And like you said, push themselves an artist with each album. Uh, case in point, jo Joni Mitchell, you know, even at Guildhall, I remember uh, professors um, when they would go into the, you know, we had a songwriting course right before I graduated. And I was really curious because I was approaching it as a songwriter myself, obviously. And I was curious to see what their take on Joni Mitchell was. And it was all about her jazz albums. And I thought, how interesting that to them, she's a prolific jazz Jazz singer, yeah. Yeah, exactly. But to some people, she's a regular, which is nothing wrong with that, a regular folk singer. And so that kind of convinced me to be, be true to what I try to do in music, which is always, I know it sounds cheesy, but it's, it's always to tell the story. Mm -hmm. Um, another case in point would be Becca Stevens. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, a lot of people place her again in the world of indie or electronic chamber folk. And for me, she's a singer songwriter. Uh, and sometimes that's the easiest answer to give. Um, does that make sense? It does. I mean, also, there was a throwaway comment or a throwaway sentence you made early on about the set list of an album. Yeah. That plays such an important part in telling this story that everybody talks about. Now, I, before I really started studying music sounds really precocious, I think before I scratched away the surface a little bit of what you mm -hmm. guys do and the way you form and mould an album, a project together, that set list really is critically important to the way the album tells that story as we sit and listen to it, probably subliminally to us. Is that something that comes late in the project to you? But again, I love these questions. Um, it, in fact, I'm currently I don't know, thinking about this myself because I started, last week I started to put the set list together for my upcoming album. 
And uh, believe it or not, I made a very risky, but very ultimately, I think, a good decision to sort of decide on the sound that mm-hmm. I want to take. Mm-hmm. And I think the sound that each artist respectively wants to take in a set list determines obviously the whole concept of the album. So I made a decision based on the music I was listening to during lockdown, based on the experiences. I said to myself, you know what? I don't want to sound like my previous albums, which is again, a lot of jazz nuances and folk influences. I actually want to be a little more groovy and a little more, uh, you know, indie electronic. And I started listening to bands that I admire. Fritz the Snow Poet is one of them. And I thought, yeah, this is something that moves me now. So I think creating a set list for an album kind of falls in line with where an artist is in their life. Um, it, it almost has to in a way. So mm. if you feel good about it, you have to trust your intuition to let that sound develop and not try to control it. And ultimately, I think that's where the best music is made, when you don't try to control the outcome, but you allow for that process to unfold. And it's a, it's a wonderful process. It's, you know, it's stru- tiring at times, but ultimately it's just great. And you said I put words eloquently across. That was a great description of how to um, <laughs> setting an album out. <laughs> because as I say, I think, you know, many of the people, listeners, won't recognise quite... The work, even, even, and it's a much more diluted case, but even in a radio show, I will try to sort the music into a certain pattern of where I want those couple of hours to be digested. Of course, I can change mine every week. An album, it's a mark in the sand of where you were as an artist and as a person for the rest of your life. As long as that album is available somewhere, that's who you were at that moment. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and, and yeah, I think, you know what, um, really convinced me to, to believe in that um, it wasn't it wasn't just being a musician so for instance this year um this past past two years let's say during this wonderful thing called pandemic um i had you know like most musicians i had gone through a huge phase of feeling like okay is this really for me can we rely on music you know we all have went through those very dark moments and it was in those dark moments that i thought no i need to turn to something to keep me sane you know, I'll be honest with you. And what kept me sane and sort of made me believe in music as an art form was when I took on part-time work as a journalist, actually, as a music journalist, something I was always passionate about. It's something we're going to talk about. Oh, and I think, and uh, writing about other people's music, David, just really made me happy in a way. I forgot what the question was, but I think I remember because there was a point to this. This is It was about being a mark in the sand (laughs) where that album was at a given point in time. Thank you. Yes. So when I, I was asked to, again, Joni Mitchell, who, as you can tell, I'm a huge fan, I was asked to talk about uh, her 50 year celebration of blue. And I actually dedicated three whole mornings listening to the reprise albums and to blue and everything. And I was just immersed in the world of Joni. And I, I heard a different story each and every track and a different sound, believe it or not. And I thought to myself, this is exactly what it means for an artist to let things unfold or unfurl, mm-hmm. for instance. Um, so it convinced me even more writing about it because I appreciated how much work um, and heart goes into that. Yeah, so you'd obviously peeled away the layers to possibly the point that Joni actually wanted the music to be experienced and listened yeah. to because I, yeah. I'm guessing you were getting a little bit into her head at that time, maybe. Yes, and and you that's that's a good point because... For instance, when I used to give, um, when I say used to, you know, when things happen in real life, um, which they will soon, 
And when I used to give some writing workshops uh, back when I was lecturing at City Academy, a lot of students came into my class initially thinking that they would learn how to write a song. But really, my, my, at least my approach was to help them figure out how to just share their story in this mm -hmm. novel called Later. And it's not just about music comes first or lyrics comes first. It's about, again, trusting the, the process of writing a narrative and giving voice to your own vulnerability. Mm -hmm. um, and it was just, it's, it's a fascinating process to me because it's, it's again, it's the most revealing. And as a singer, you're already exposed. People are staring at you. They're expecting the world of you. But again, if you kind of meditate into that frame of mind of wanting to offer a story, then it can all make sense. As, as, as we preface right at the start, Lindsay, that's why I feel for singers. Hmm. And forgive me, I'm not meaning to be sexist in the slightest, but I think probably almost worse for a female singer because you are very prominently at the front of the stage and are being looked at. I, I somehow feel it's different for a male singer. I don't know if that's appropriate or not, but I feel that a female singer has got possibly one of the hardest gigs around because a musician can at least hide behind their horn. With you, it's your voice. It's you. It's as naked as it gets. It's as real as it gets, isn't it? If you have a bum night, it's you. It's your voice. Uh, that's a very good point. I will answer the following way. And forgive me if that was sexist at all. It certainly wasn't. No, 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 no. Absolutely non-sexist. And, and I know your stance on, on and your support on women in music. So I, I applaud you for that. Not at all. I will answer, I think, in this way. So I don't hide behind my instrument. And I say two instruments here, uh, my voice and the piano. Mm -hmm. So the piano is my first instrument. Mm -hmm. And now I'm playing a lot more in my gigs and I have, I've always been accompanying myself um, besides people I work with. So mm. when I'm at the piano, I'll be honest with you, it does feel like home. And when mm. I'm singing next to the piano, it feels like this is just the most authentic delivery. And there I noticed that uh, especially male audience members, for better or for worse, are always quote-unquote fascinated, you know, as well as females. And then when I get up and sing, I always get the same comment of, oh, you sound like an instrumentalist. How amazing. And I, I try, again, for male um, audience members, and again, as well as female, I try not to think of them as a sexist thing. I think what's more apparent to me, uh, and again, maybe to my character as a performer, is how people, how musicians themselves, and I will say this, talk about female singers. They, for instance, they don't expect them to be instrumentalists. And for me, I think that's the problem right there. It's within our own community. And, I, you know, maybe it's a bit daring to say, but I think that needs to be addressed because if there's no unity in that, then, you know. Well, it was funny. I, just before we started, I hit the call button. I, I just had to mention to you about my daughter and her dissertation, her master's. Yeah. Part of the, her master's is on women in jazz. And there was, she AB'd and, and uh, recorded interviews with many, many females during the course of this dissertation. Obviously, it was no names mentioned, but one of the stories there was somebody was at a club with, I think it was a sax case or a horn case of some sort by her side. And some guy came up and said, is your boyfriend playing in a band then? <laughs> and it's, a, it's kind of still, still that goes on. You know, you can't have a woman turn up and blow a horn at a gig. It's why not? You know, <laughs> it just doesn't seem to. Oh, man. And it's still good. Have you ever experienced any, or any, not any, but much sexism within the world of music and or jazz? Uh, there obviously is a fine, there is a differentiation there, but I just wondered if you experienced anything? Uh, I experienced it, but I, I think I was so naive back then that I didn't clock into... Oh, you didn't know that's later. what it was. 
Yeah, so I'll share it with you because it was it's quite funny actually. I was in, I will say I was in running spots and I was going to the uh, after after hours jam. Yeah. I was really excited to be there, and I didn't have my piano with me because who carries a piano? Exactly. Unless it's a keyboard, and also they have one there anyway. So I show up with all my Guildhall friends and just excited to just get into the jam. And I bounced the door and was like, uh, "Are you a musician?" And I said, yes. He goes, where's your instrument? And I thought I was just being funny, you know, being a smart ass, I guess. And I said, well, it's on me. And he goes, what do you mean? It's on me. I said, it's on me. I'm, I'm a singer. No, I meant instrument. And I looked at him, yeah. just so. And he let me in eventually because he saw that I just wouldn't budge until he let me in. And I went in and my friends were like, oh, are you okay? And I thought, what? See, for me, that's also a cultural thing because I was brought up in a household that I always just, I didn't take such comments to heart. Mm -hmm. But then in London, I have to say, as international as it is, there is quite a bit of sexism in the music industry, which surprises me at times. Um, and sometimes it's so subtle. Mm. And I think that's the worst kind of sexism one can face, unfortunately. Yeah, I mean, oftentimes when I finish recording interviews, I have this discussion. And some of the stories I've been told have been horrific. I mean, things that you just think would be back in the 60s or 70s and still being asked and said now from guys that you feel should know better. And unfortunately, to a large-ish degree, jazz is still a male-dominated from a gig, a, a, a club organising, gig organising side. Is I know there's a lot of bookers that are females now, mm -hmm. but there is still that predominance of males and males that are perhaps a little older. <laughs> so maybe hark back to another era. I know it's fading, but it, it's just one of those things that uh, that sickens me is is wrong. It's just it, it's just not needed, is it? I mean, you can sing, you're a singer. If you can play a sax, you're a sax player. Whatever, you're a musician. It doesn't need to have a gender or sex that goes alongside it as well. Train and you came home without Lily. 
What can I possibly say? I guess that I miss you. I guess I forgive you. I'm glad you stood in my way. If you ever come by here for Jane or for me, your enemy sleeping and his woman is free. Yes. finish off the first part of the interview with Lara there with a famous Leonard Cohen track, Famous Blue Raincoat, and more from Lara in a short while's time. Don't forget, check out her website, Lara Ed Music, E-D spelled E-I-D-I, laraedmusic.com, and you can find out her whereabouts on the EFG London Jazz Festival. Another album that came out earlier this year to great critical acclaim was that of Nigel Price and his organ trio, Where's Reimagined? It's a 10-track album. All of the tracks bar two are originals from Wes Montgomery. And uh, what he's done with this version of Road Song is brilliant. He's taken from a groovy bosser through to a raucous shuffle.
So the lineup on that album is amazing. Obviously, you've got Nigel on guitar, Ross Daniel on the Hammond B3, Joel Barford is on drums. You've got two great sax players, two beast sax players on there. You've got Vasilis Sinopoulos on tenor, Tony Kofi on alto, Snowboys on percussion, and Callum Al is guesting on trombone and also doing the string arrangements on the album and with Christmas just around the corner. If you haven't got the album yet, or in fact, one of your family members haven't got the album in their collection yet, that would make a great addition to any collection. Time now that we carry on with our interview with this week's guest, Lara Eady, and we're going to kick off with a Neil Young composition, actually, her version of Old Man. Straight Ahead with David Lewis. <laughs> Much to me, to me. 
no, and and that's one of the reasons why I think there there is a lot of hope um, yet. And for instance, um, there's so many wonderful communities that are part of it, which embrace that. For instance, um, there is women in jazz media. You well, know, yeah, like, I was going to lead on to your journalism side. And oh, obviously the women yeah. in jazz. I think that's probably one of the first instances I came across you. I, either on Twitter or on Instagram, I think is the first time I saw your name. It's in connection with women in jazz. And I saw this name. And then obviously from there, I got to know more of you as an artist as well. I think in the first instance, I knew of you more as a journalist. Than as a, oh, which, interesting. Which is, you know, just to, because obviously the first way you introduce to somebody is kind of how, you, again, pigeonhole. It's getting back to that awful thing, <laughs> isn't it? So I thought of you as a journalist. I didn't know of you as a performer as well. So this passion for writing and journalism, where did that stem from then? I mean, I can totally understand it because I can't write for top and that's, a, I can write, but interviewing, I love. I absolutely mm -hmm. love getting to know somebody who's peeling back the layers, talking to people. I find really, really interesting. Is that the same kind of passion affair you have with, with writing and journalism? I think it's so, sorry, it's so amazing how you knew me as a journalist first. That's really cool. Uh, yes, I... That's why I took up journalism because I love getting to know peeling layers back of mm. people and, and also not just in, um, you know, reviews, which is a lot easier than interviews. Like for instance, I do you think credit to album reviews, I, I would not know where to start on an album. I read some liners and I, I'm, I'm not bad with words, but I read these lines. I, I just could never do that. I, there was, <laughs> I, I received Paul, I can't remember who the gentleman was that wrote Paul Edith's liner notes on his new album, The Still Point of a, stand, mm -hmm. of a Standing World. Um, but it was the first sentence was composed over a year, performed in a day. And I just thought, okay, well, that, that's the line is done for me. Just that first line <laughs> kind of says it all. But it's interesting. You say reviewing's easy. I would have thought that's so hard. You know why? I think for me, because as I said, my, my first degree was in literature and I'm super analytical person, always will be. And I just love just listening to something or reading about something and analyzing it to its very core and placing myself in that person, hopefully, or balanced frame of mind. And I'm, I have to give thanks to uh, Georgia Mancho here, the, my colleague and founder. She's been on the show. Yeah. Wonderful. wonderful I know. Artist. Yeah. Lovely she, artist. She's an incredible human being. She's the one who urged me to uh, contact me women in jazz, but also uh, I was mentioning this for a reason to the second part of your question, which is why I find interviews a little more challenging. Um, when I interviewed her and I just recently interviewed another artist who will be playing alongside the series on part of uh, women in jazz media for the jazz festival, uh, Alina Hip Hop. And again, it's yes, she's been here. <laughs> I know. I know. It's I've, done my, I've done my heart players. I've you, you've, done, you've done the whole thing. And I'm closing the circle with me, I guess. So when I when I interviewed each of them, I I I'm like you. I'm a, I'm you know, I love to talk to people and I thought, okay, great, I'm gonna talk to them via Zoom. Now transcribing those conversations on paper was really difficult, is really difficult. And I had to edit, re-edit, and re-edit. And then I thought to myself, what am I doing? I could have just sent 10 questions and gotten back written responses. And I thought, oh, no, no, no. I, I want to get to it. It's not the same, right? Mm -hmm. And it, and also, again, I approach journalism like I would as a musician myself, because I noticed that being on the receiving end of that, when people would interview me uh, in a written way, you know, a webseed or what have you, they would, you know, they tried, but they would very rarely get the answers I gave them. 
which always really, you know, disappointed me. It's not bad, but I thought, and I never really quite said it like that. And so interviewing is an art form that I have yet to, you know, really do well, but I'm enjoying it. You know, it's... it's I, I, I absolutely love it. I mean, the simple rules, and I'm by no means an expert at it, but the, the simple rules I've set myself are that I never script the interviews. I would always research the artist because I think one of the, the, the biggest insults you could ever make is turn up and not know anything about a person that's agreed to give you their time. And also it would come across in the interview if you had absolutely no knowledge of what they are as an artist, as a person. But outside that, I think scripting, and that's why I've never sent anybody ever a set of questions before the interview because I didn't, I had an idea how I thought this interview would run and it hasn't gone anything like I thought it would run, which is great because we've kind of been freewheeling. We've, we've just gone at tangents. We've talked about different aspects and different layers and different angles that I would never have dreamt of trying to script down. And that's, that's can be, if you get the right person on the other end, that can be the great thing with an interview that it begins to take oh, its own great. form. So one of the questions I was going to ask you is about your time at the Guildhall. So yeah. how did you end up in London? Why did you end up in London? And, and how come at Conservatoire? Very, yeah, I love these questions. And, and by the way, I'm all about tangents. So I, <laughs> I mean, especially in conversation. I haven't yelled at you about cooking yet. Don't worry, we've got plenty of time. <laughs> oh, perfect, perfect. Maybe we have a little hour of conversation cooking. Um, so Guildhall, why Guildhall? Very good question. Because there are three, cons- so, three main conservatoires in London, of course, and the Guildhall is yeah. one of the prominent ones. Was that your first choice, only choice? Because the audition level is in itself is a, is a rigorous process. Very rigorous process. Uh, um, so before that, I was already touring with my trio here uh, with the, my longtime collaborators and very good friends, uh, Stavros Parginos. Who's been with me, um, who came to London and did gigs with me, who's a cellist, and Giotis, who's a guitarist. Anyway, we were touring uh, in Lebanon and in all over Europe. And so I didn't really think to pursue any more musical studies, but I started to have a sort of need to just push myself. And I knew that my, and this is probably like a personal decision based mostly on personal reasons, I knew that I couldn't really develop more as an artist in Greece, because it's, you know, we have a wonderful scene, but it's tiny and they don't really support English speaking musicians still, I have to be honest. So it was the guys in the band who I absolutely adored, who encouraged me. They were like, well, you need to leave Greece. And I thought, well, where am I going to go? And they said, what about London? Which, you know, I had lived in London previously. I was always, you know, seeing friends or what have you. So I had this crazy idea, a Capricorn that I am. I thought, oh. Why don't I just apply for something and that it will make me stay as opposed to just going to London and just, you know, gigging because I'm crazy. So I applied and then I, I applied for a part scholarship. And before I went to um, the audition, I met with the then director, Mark Hathaway. And he asked me, he, he listened to me and he said, well, why do you want to study jazz? You know, and I said, because I really love it. And I was also, besides the singer-songwriter stuff, I was also part of the gypsy jazz quartet. And I answered him and I said, because I love everything about jazz and I want to develop as a person and as an artist and I need to be in London. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that's why I chose it. And Guildhall seemed like a right fit. I didn't even, I, I don't know, I was just so convinced that this was the right place for me. So I applied, I got in the same day. I was really happy on the way to the airport. They called me and I thought, okay, cool. And, um, and by the way, I, when I went into my audition, uh, Lee Gibson was there and she's just, I love her. She became my mentor later. And um, 
she told me, well, can you read music really well? And I was really embarrassed because I, I'm a classical pianist, but I'm really bad at sight reading. And I told her, not really. She goes, oh, but you can't read music. And I said, well, I, you know, I, I rely on my ear. She said, okay. So I, I was feeling all sorts of pressure and everything. And I thought I had a moment of doubt thinking, why the hell am I going to be in a conservatory with people judging you? Anyway, long story short, I got in. It was not what, it, what I expected, David, at all. And I'm really grateful for that. It challenged me in ways um, which were quite, quite tough, you know. Um, it's a tough environment to be in. Besides all the great, you know, musicians you come to know and the teachers, it's not exactly, because I was approaching it already as an adult, you know, at 29 years old back then. And I thought, okay, this isn't really like the real world, you know, whereas people who were studying who were a little younger or a lot older thought it was. So for me, Guildhall was more about being an anchor for what I wanted to do in London in general. And as a result, the minute I made that choice in my head that I was going to try to use everything possible, from teachers and from musicians, I started to meet artists that really influenced me, uh, such as Ian Shaw. Mm-hmm. Really his, his name comes up so many times. I know. Everybody seems to be touched by Ian in some way. I, exactly, because he is that person. He's the most generous artist, honestly. I was going to say, that's, that is also the first word, gentle. That is the first word everybody, without exception, says about Ian. Yes, he he's a gentle soul. He's a generous soul. And I'll be honest with you, since we're, this conversation is all about honesty, which is great. And um, when I, this was like my first year in Guildhall and I had shown up late uh, five minutes into his, uh, the first class I had with him was in, you know, private session. And he didn't make me feel bad about it all until he, and he said, great, do you want to sing something straight away? I was really tired. I didn't want to be there. And I, I sang something by Barbara Streisand. <laughs> and then he said, great, do you want to sing with me? Um, I might gig this week. And I was like, what? You know, so for me, that was so, because by the way, I think artists don't talk about this enough you need that validation especially mm-hmm. conservatives you, you need to be validated for yeah. who you are yeah. so i thought he was joking and he messaged me later on saying are you are you coming to the gig and i said okay and that changed everything i thought i knew about myself as a performer you know to be on that stage with someone as amazing as him really put things into perspective and i still i'm still friends with him obviously and i i have guested on a bunch of stuff with him um, if, particularly in his wonderful work with refugees, which mm-hmm. is something very dear to me. But yeah, that's what the nutshell Guntal represented. It was just the place where everything else happened, if that makes sense. And again, it's these little nuggets of things that, as I'm listening to you, I'll just pick up on, you were talking about the jazz scene in, in Greece. Um, yeah. Very close friend of mine, I don't know if somebody you've worked with or not, Vasilisnopolis. One of the very first guests I ever had on this show, probably going back four years, maybe five years, very close, really close family friend. But I saw a post of his, again, on social media. He'd been playing at some church last weekend saying, this is crazy. We can gig all over in the UK in church lists. There are hundreds of Orthodox churches in Greece that won't let us play in them. And I, I, I just, I, you know, so I see these things, bleary-eyed, I wake up in the morning, scroll through what you've all been doing the night before. And, and then I just happen to see that post. And sure enough, you mention it. See, I'm keeping an eye on these things for a reason. <laughs> You really are. I'm so impressed. As I said to see at the beginning before we hit record, I was, how do you remember that? It's amazing. Uh, Vasilis, I, see, that's the other thing, David. I'm very, 
again, because in Greece, I'm not really considered to be a, um, a Greek artist. I'm more like the foreign Greek artist who happens to speak Greek. So as a result, I'm never really uh, known or played with Greek musicians in London, I, mm-hmm. it, which is very strange. And, you know, but I've collaborated more with international artists from, you know, from all over the world. And so when I did meet fellow Greek musicians, it, it was, it's always funny because they're like, wait, you're living in Greece. We know the same people. How come we never played with you? And, and I raise my hands up and say, well, I don't know. And uh, it's, it's a shame really, because I think Athens, I don't know about the rest of Greece, but Athens for me has a lot of potential. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I do think it does, just like London, I guess, in other ways and respects, I think it does need to change its mentality uh, towards towards musicians. Uh, like you, like Vasily said, there are tons of venues here. Tons of, do they actually function the way they should? No. Uh, is there enough funding? No. Um, yes, you can pin that down to the economic crisis we've had, but I don't think that's an excuse because, for instance, case in point, Lebanon, and you've seen what Lebanon has gone through uh, in the last three years. They still put on gigs, you know, mm. because they, they realize the importance of music is what I'm saying. To the that's community, that's, absolutely, yeah. yeah. That's not to say that, you know, th- there isn't there aren't great things going on here. You know, it's just one of the reasons why I came back because it's home to me and it's, you know. So I think, yeah, I just hope it changes is what I'm saying. So let's wind things on a little before I take up all of your evening. Uh, you've probably got many best things to be doing this in talking to me, but the, you are over for the EFG London Jazz Festival, aren't you? You're coming back over to London. You mentioned a moment ago that it's related to the women in jazz and women in media. Uh, yes. Line up. So talk a little bit about your gigs in the festival, where people can see you and what kind of gigs you're putting on. Yes, thank you. Uh, by the way, you're not taking up my evening. This is really <laughs> 8.30 for me. It's great. It is my evening. So I am going to thankfully be playing at the Jazz Fest, London Jazz Festival. It's my first time headlining uh, there. So it's very exciting. Um, and the series is part of the um a whole curated event uh, festival put on by Women in Jazz Media. They've got wonderful artists playing. Uh, I'm not all female, by the way. And it's in honor of women in music and Black Lives Matter. So it's really just completely things which I really mm. support. Mm. And so my own gig uh, as a duo uh, with Nadja Sharif, who's a wonderful pianist, uh, that's going to be on the 14th of November at 8 p.m. at Toulouse-Lautrec. Uh, and I can't wait. And I hope people come. <laughs> I can never hope to say Toulouse-Lautrec anywhere near as prettily as you just did. Never till oh. my dying day can I say that. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's a Lebanese French creator. It really is. I'm going to go and sit and cry in a corner there. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. Okay, Toulouse-Lautrec. I don't know how English people say. <laughs> so that's a gig on the 14th of November. It's going to be an evening of um, original music by myself and Nadia. And also we're going to be covering a lot of singer-songwriters, uh, ranging from Paul Simon to composers like Vince Mendoza. So it's going to be quite diverse and mm. all are welcome. And there's something in there for everyone, I think. And are you recording at the moment? Have you got, I mean, you talked about the album that's in hand. When's that likely to be an album that's released? Sometime next year or the year after? 
Thank you. Um, so I've just started the very sort of preliminary stages of that. Uh, the album is going to be called Home. Um, there just can't be a more fitting title based on everything we've spoken about. Um, so I'm working on getting the arrangements and I'm aiming to release it um, in, November, in a year from now, November of next year. Uh, and of course I'm going to be applying for funding and I want to tour with it first before I can actually record it. Mm -hmm. And that's going to be a self-release album again? It is going to be self-released, uh, unless some miracle happens and, you know, an, an agent says, Hey, great. I'll, I'll sign you on. I don't know. <laughs> you know? It's, a, it's a tough gig self-releasing really is because you have to do all of the work yourself and the amount of work that goes in behind the scenes of trying to get stations to play it, get onto playlists, get gigs be able to tour it. It's just hard work, isn't it? Because you have to, you've got no one else in your team doing that for you. You, you do and you don't. Like I remember my first experience of, of putting on everything by myself and uh, no one had told me about it. It was um, playing at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival. And again, I'm crazy. I did that for two years in a row because it actually gave me a lot of perspective because I, you know, we did everything. We played the music. We handed out flyers to people who either welcomed us, cursed us, because, you know, they've got like 100,000 flyers in one second. Um, and it taught me a lot. It taught me a lot about humility and accepting that this is, the, the music industry is very, very, very tough world. However, um, the reason why I do music and I persist on doing things on my own, with the help of the team sometimes, is that I just don't imagine myself doing anything else. It just makes sense to me. That's the best way to be. I mean... Clearly, it's such a massive part of your life and I can see how it touches you, how it evokes energy in you. And there's nothing else I can really see that would bring that passion to you, be it writing or performing. It's clearly what you want to be and how you want to express yourself. Thank you. Yeah, it, it, it's been challenging a lot, uh, especially during the pandemic, you know. But it, that all just dissipates and dis you know disappears rather into the thin air once you're on stage and you see how much you affect the audience and how much they invest in listening to you. Because I think that's what music is about to me. Mm -hmm. It's more, more important. It's about connecting something so personal to yourself. It's about evoking that same story across and, and reaching people. And it's, it's always going to be about that, you know? Absolutely. That's what music does. I mean, it's one of the, the, the most uh, unifying art forms over and above any kind of other art form, be it painting, be it movies, be it acting, theatre, music, because I think it lives so long in our memories and it is a soundtrack to our lives. For that reason, I'm, th I'm sure that's why it's one of the most enduring art forms around. Yes, so, it is. It is. Absolutely. Well, it's been a long time in coming, but and I say, I can literally just throw that, those notes away now. It, just, it didn't have anything to do with how I thought the interview was going to run, but it was fascinating. I think we covered a lot of topics <laughs> I've not had the chance to speak to another artist about, so... It's been lovely. Really enjoyed it. Really have enjoyed it. I'm really glad. And uh, sorry I didn't, you know, I sort of made you sway away to different tangents, but I'm happy you had a good time as well. Lovely, <laughs> lovely. Absolutely wonderful. Uh, just mention your website where people can look up and find you on Insta. Sure. Um, so you can find me on Instagram um, and Twitter and Facebook by my name, which is spelled Lara, L-A-R-A-N-E-D-E-I-D like David, I and same thing applies to my website www.laraedmusic.com nice and easy got in there early and got your name on the website and on Instagram <laughs> it's when you see the one at the end you know you're never the first one there <laughs> no I'm never the first one there there's only one Laura Needy preferably <laughs> no that's wonderful thank you so much it's been lovely really lovely talking to you and I hope 
you have a wonderful time when you come back here on the London Jazz Festival and hopefully get you down to six sometime soon as well. It'd be lovely to see you down there. Yes, that would be absolutely great. That's my next gig. So, so wonderful. Thank you so much, Steve. Thank you for your time. It's been lovely talking to you. You too. Take care.
one of the undoubted privileges of this job is sitting down, meeting and talking to artists just like Lara. Really enjoyed my time with Lara. And don't forget, visit her website, laraedmusic.com. You can get all of her gig details there. And she is over in London at the moment for the EFG London Jazz Festival. And the track we finished off with at the end of the interview was Tiny People. Speaking of the Jazz Festival, this coming Saturday night as part of the EFG London Jazz Festival, we have got Mornington Lockett down with us. Not only Mornington, though, it is the Peter King Memorial Sack Summit featuring Mornington, Alex Clark, James Gardner-Bateman and Nadine Telmori on the saxes, along with the Deshnell Gordon Tree. That's going to be a hell of a night down at the club. It all gets going from nine o'clock and we're about to listen to a track featuring Mornington along with the new jazz couriers and this is their take on Pint of Bitter. Straight ahead with the 606 Club and David Lewis. <laughs>
Last weekend down at Cadogan Hall was a big evening for album releases. Chris Standring was there, Joe Harrop and Paul Edis. Uh, and on stage also was an 18-piece string orchestra. And the sound at Cadogan Hall is amazing. It's a fantastic night. Some great pictures online if you want to go and take a look. We're going to go to Joe's album first, The Heart Wants. She's got some amazing guest artists on there, including Marcus Bonfanti, the bass player, Christian McBride, and also pianist Jason Rebello. And it's one of Jason's tracks we got ready to play next, If I Ever Would Leave You. It couldn't be in springtime 
Knowing how in springtime I'm bewitched by your soul Oh no, not in springtime Summer, winter, or fall If ever If ever I 
knowing Joe as I do, I bet she's already deep in preparation, putting together music for the next time she's on the show with me, uh, which will be the last Wednesday of the month, as you know. In fact, that will be just after she's been with us down at the club. She's with us on Sunday the 21st of November, along with Rachel Sutton and Eileen Hunter. It's a lunchtime gig. It's going from 1.30. And the details are over on the website, 606club.co.uk, if you want to go and check out the details there. So we play the track from Joe. Next up is the track from Paul Edis, again released on a lateralised label and part of the uh, festival evening of music down at Cadogan Hall last weekend. It's the solo album that he recently released, The Still Point of the Turning World, that we're going to be turning to. And from that, we're going to listen to Muddle Through.
thank you to our guest this week, Lara Eady. Don't forget, go and check out her website, laraedmusic.com, for more details on her and where you can expect to see her playing over the next few months. She's over in London at the moment, getting ready for her performance as part of the EFG London Jazz Festival. And you'll find details of that gig on her website. And thank you for keeping me coming over the last couple of hours. So we've got time for just one more track on this week's show. I mentioned we were going to be returning to the album that I started to play tracks on last week from Brian Molly. The uh, Brian Molly Quartet have got a brand new set coming out on Friday the 3rd of December. Modern Traditions is the name of the album. Brian's been getting some great reviews from magazines such as Jazzwise and Rolling Stone. And it's actually a, a waltz that was written, well, <laughs> written as kind of a first wedding dance song, actually, for Queen Mary and King Philip many, many, many years ago. We're playing out on this week straight ahead with Syncopace for Mary and Philip. Thanks to company and I'll see you next week for more jazz and conversation.
Da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da